Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Chloe Prendergast. And I'm Emma Williams. We're so glad you've joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Each episode, we explore a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Our goal is that you don't have to be a total music nerd to enjoy this podcast, so we put little explanations of technical terms, some background info, and excerpts of the music we're talking about throughout the episode. If we miss anything, definitely let us know and we'll clarify in future episodes. We've also linked some Spotify playlists in the show notes with all the music we talk about so you can enjoy for your own listening pleasure. Today's guest is English violist Annette Isselis, who neither of us have actually met in the flesh yet, but we've heard a lot about her and have lots of mutual friends and colleagues. And many of the people we've interviewed already on this podcast have suggested talking to Nettie, so we're really excited to share our chat with you all today. She brought in a couple of pieces for Vial Consort by 16th and 17th century English composers Orlando Gibbons and Henry Purcell. This show is fully listener-supported, so please consider donating via our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash outsidemusicbox, also linked in the show notes. We really appreciate the support so we can keep the show running and so we can pay our lovely friend Joanna Neuschatz for her help with editing. Thanks for joining us and enjoy this episode with Annette and some 17th century English consort music. everyone hello <laughs> thanks so much for being here <laughs> oh, well thank you very much for inviting me I'm terribly honored and uh, a bit trepidatious actually <laughs> oh the honor is all ours <laughs> um so on this podcast we get um our guests to introduce themselves so do you mind introducing yourself for everyone well okay my name is Annette Isselis and most of my friends call me Nettie and um I sort of seem to have ended up specialising in Baroque viola or rather sort of historically informed performance on the viola. Um, That's where I'm at nowadays, you know, but I I did start off as a a playing the piano, actually. That was my main thing until I was 16. But um, my identity does seem to be on the viola nowadays. You identify as a violist, yeah. Yes, yes. (laughs) Nice. Um, And, yeah, we've had so many people suggest you as a guest, actually. A lot of our past interviewees um, interviewees, (laughs) um, have suggested talking to you, so it's really exciting to finally get to chat to you. Um, And also, we also have a sort of slight friend, work colleague in common, my dear childhood friend Kiki Betts-Dean um, uh, works with you at OAE and yes. I think we all just share a lot of love between the three of us so <laughs> just sort of make that connection oh, as well. Lovely. Oh that's really nice. We're just about to start some German conversation classes together. <laughs> oh cool. As in she teaching you German? or uh, Well, actually, no. Um, our principal over from the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment is um, there's three of us, um, Kiki's colleague, Marina. Um, and uh, so um, Katerina is going to supervise our attempts at German conversation. 
Ah, great. That's completely off the point, isn't it? But um, yes, well, I'm I'm absolutely amazed that people have suggested me because I have to say I'm more used to interviewing people about themselves than than talking about me, really. Yeah. (laughs) And now you get to be on the other side of it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And today you've brought in a couple of really beautiful 17th century English pieces. Uh, Do you want to, which one do you want to start with? Maybe the Gibbons since it was written first? Well, the Gibbons. I mean, what I find amazing about the Gibbons is just that how old it is, really. Um, I mean, you know, we we sort of tend to talk about Baroque music and sort of Jacobean music and stuff. And actually, Orlando Gibbons was born in 1583, which is a seriously long time ago. And he a long time ago. I mean, it really is, isn't it? And um, and yet the the next piece I chose by Purcell was written about 60 years after that, and we still think of Purcell is really really old and um Purcell, you know he was born in 1659 um and so it's it's just what i love about um this music well i don't know do you want me to tell you how i came upon it or do you want me to talk about the music yeah maybe maybe start with how you came came upon it yes okay so what happened was that um Okay, it goes back a bit. I I sort of took up the piano when I was about three and then I went to junior school and had my piano lessons, carried on with my piano lessons. But alongside that, I absolutely adored leaping around and dancing and um, became really into ballet, as (laughs) little girls do. But um, I was very lucky to be indulged by my grandmother and my parents and they sort of used to take me. I went to the uh, Mary Rumba ballet school as a junior and then I went to the Royal Ballet School as a junior um, wow. and um, I loved it and then the opportunity came to go to a stage school and um, my parents thought oh well she loves ballet and she's a bit thick so she's not going to be academic and why doesn't she go to this ballet school and a <gasps> very nice rich uncle paid for me to go to well it was actually a, a stage school was the Arts Educational Trust so when I was 10 I went there and it was a boarding school wow. and um, the academic side of things were really really bad but you know we we did sort of things like dancing and acting and um well all sorts of other things but actually I it's terrible I was so fickle but you know as soon as I got there and discovered all these other wonderful stage struck females prancing around much better than I did (laughs) I got a bit sort of shy and then I started actually missing my my dancing classes to to practice the piano you know and do other things and, and do art and the more dance classes I missed the fatter I got and the fatter I got the less I wanted to be seen in a leotard you know and it was one of those things where people were terribly conscious of how you looked you know and I actually had got dumped in diet dining room which wasn't much fun so I sort of actually took solace in my music anyway sort of wind forward a few years um and um I kept trying to leave the school and I you know I, I was expelled actually for trying to sell my school coat to get enough money to run away with oh my god <laughs> actually, in the end how, how old were you um well I was old enough to know better I was about 15 but at the age of 16 um <laughs> my, my parents had said I could leave when I got five O levels so I did my music O level when I was 14 and then I did another four random O levels 
um, the next year. Sorry, I'm I'm American, so I don't know what O levels are. Can you explain those to me? Oh, I'm so sorry. It's just sort of certificates of educate. You know, it's just educational okay. levels. You know, <laughs> sort of to show that okay. you you have had a semblance of education, which I haven't really. But anyway, and um, and then okay. I decided what I really wanted to do was music and art, and I I hadn't quite decided. In fact, I think I already had had a place in an art college. And then I suddenly thought, just before I actually left school, I thought, actually, I feel more like a musician as an identity than Mm. an artist. So I went to do A-levels, which is the what you do at the age of 18, 17, 18, Mm. um, at something called Chiswick Polytechnic, which was just in West London. And it was just a a polytechnic way you could do things like music and art. And um, when I went there, that was, I mean, the first thing that was amazing was that um, there were men there as well, boys, you know, and having been in this sort of school full of hysterical stage struck females, I didn't know what it hit me. (laughs) But the other wonderful thing about working for my music A-level there was that there was a very enlightened head of department called Brian Richardson, who happened to adore early music. He played the lute and he was very keen on it. And he'd invested in what we call a chest of vials, which means that he had six vials, um, two treble, um, two tenor and two bass vials Um, and he was very keen for people to learn these vials to play consorts. We've talked about the vial or the viola da gamba a bit in some of our other episodes but if this is new for you a viola da gamba is a bowed string instrument that rests between the legs. It literally means vial of the leg. It has either six or seven strings made of gut and comes in many sizes. Unlike the violin and cello it has frets like a guitar. All of these sizes of violas de gamba, which people either shorten to viol or gamba, together create a family like the violin, viola and cello. When a group of these different sized gambas are played together, it becomes a consort, which is basically a bowed version of a choir. This was a really popular genre in the 16th and 17th centuries. And we do refer to consorts quite a bit in this episode because both the pieces Nettie brought in are for consorts, so this is what we're talking about. And to this end, he got this wonderful, wonderful eccentric musician called Francis Baines to come in and teach us. And I was really up for this. And in fact, I took up the viola at the same time. I didn't learn the viola in Chiswick Polytechnic, but I learned the viola with a friend of my brother's cello teacher. Um, So I sort of just started viola from scratch then only having played the the piano. But um, on the viol, I just loved playing the viol. Um, I didn't sort of play it particularly well. And because it's got six strings, you know, it's terribly easy to be bowing one string and fingering another one by mistake and wondering why the pitch didn't change. You know, sort of, that yeah. quite a lot <laughs> to me. But the wonderful thing about Francis Baines was that he and his wife both played the, the viol as well as his wife was a violinist and Francis was a a double bass player and a composer, but they used to invite their students into their house to play consort music. And um, this was how I came across Gibbons and Purcell and all that. And it was the most wonderful, wonderful introduction to that sort of music just to be, and they, we didn't have music stands. They had a table 
um, which was big enough for us to sit round it and have our music lying on the table. So you didn't have a physical wow. barrier between you. It was absolutely fantastic in their front room, in their house, which happened to be not so far from my parents' house. Um, so I was a, and it, it was just absolutely wonderful to go there and play. And I, I remember being introduced to this five-part in nomine by Orlando Gibbons. It's called an in nomine because it's a bit, basically a piece of plain chant that became sort of transposed from its original um, Roman Catholic mass context. Um, composed, somehow it became an entity on its own and composers that weren't even Catholic, they just used it as a basis Um to weave other parts around it. I'm sure you're going to be able to explain this better than I can. But um, basically, this five-part piece, you have a very, very slow plain chant going on in the second treble part, the alto part. Um, and it goes through the whole piece, and it's, you know, each bar is one note of the plain chant. But what Gibbons does so amazingly is to weave all this stuff around it. So it almost gets buried, it's there, you're aware of it being there. Um, and the whole piece starts with this um plain chart, you know, in the second part, but almost immediately this wonderful descending figure starts and it sort of cascades of them, you know, from every single part, but just syncopated. And the idea, the sort of feeling is you just forget where the beat is somehow. You get completely discombobulated. So just to recap, we actually think Nettie did a pretty good job of explaining the structure of this in nomine by Orlando Gibbons. So in this piece, one viol plays a plain chant throughout. So plain chant comes from a kind of chanting that we can see in many religious ceremonies throughout history. Plain chants in particular come from the earlier centuries of the Catholic Mass. You may have heard of Gregorian chant. This is also a version of plain chant. But the plain chant used in, in nomines in general comes from the Gloria Tibi Trinitas in the Roman Catholic liturgy. Here's the original Gloria Tibi Trinitas plain chant by itself. And then, as you just heard Nettie explain, Gibbons took this Gloria TB Trinitas plain chant melody and slowed it down a lot, so much so that you can't even hear that that is the melody anymore. The second to the highest part plays this chant the entire time, while the other parts play faster notes around it. Here's how it sounds in the version from Gibbons.
Um, and it's almost as if you're floating. It's, it, it doesn't feel at all grounded because you don't really know where the beat is. Um, so if you had to write it down from ear, you know, you really would have trouble sort of somehow writing it down. And it's really clever as well it, um, because there's a lot of imitation Um so uh, in canon, which means, you know, that you get one part playing something and then the, another part will come in with the same thing, but a little bit later. So it's as if it's following a few steps behind. And then you get some things that are upside down, and it's it's and I absolutely adore music that is harmonically very scrunchy and satisfying, but also that's very clever. You know, I just love clever music. I I don't like it to be cluttered, you know, too cluttered to follow what's going on. But I just I just am so amazed. You know, when you think how early this piece was. Um, I mean, I suppose he was writing it some t- between sixteen ten and sixteen twenty or something. I'm not absolutely sure, but um, it is the most wonderful piece of music. I just absolutely love it, and um, yeah, and it, that's amazing. It is amazing, and it starts off, you know, really, really slowly. So um, you get you get this, and it's it's got this sort of um, lovely, almost like bells ringing, you know, these. Um, these descending scales and then you get little ripples going up alongside you know and it just carries on like that and then towards the end of the piece it just carries on just getting more and more active and so you started off with your dum 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 and then you get dum 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 and then da 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 and by the end it's going dum 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 you know and it's really sort of getting like that and then it it sort of somehow gets to the end in such a triumphant way and although it's a sort of minor piece it ends with this wonderful major chord and you just feel so good when you get to the end it's it's most wonderful wonderful piece really That's why I absolutely love it. And I found when I was playing it, I would go into a sort of trance. You know, it's a complete out-of-body experience playing playing music like this. So that's why I love it so much. Yeah. And do you remember? Do you remember when you first were playing it? Do you remember realizing how clever it was logically? Or were you just like, I love this? Did, like how much of the, the compositional... St- 
what cleverness did you yeah. did you understand well, at that moment? The first time through, I was probably hanging in there for grim death, trying not to get lost. You know, counting like anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not wanting to let myself down. You know, and sort of not wanting to let Francis and his wife June down. You know, and um, yeah. So I was probably the first act, but I was aware this is really weird. It's all syncopated. I've never played anything like this as old as this that's that does something so modern in a way you know and I thought this is absolutely extraordinary and then we played it through again because I'm sure somebody got lost and it ground to a halt and we start again and each time we played it and we used to play it every week because I used to ask for it because I loved it so much and each time we played it I thought I, I sort of uncovered different layers and just got to love mm. it more and more and more and I love the harmonic language and I love the very sort of calm way it, it sort of starts and then and you're aware you know whoever was playing the in nominee it was a bit of a grind for them you know and it was just became an exercise yeah. in vogue and so we used to take it yeah. in turns to play that part you know I mean we I mean although the tenor vial was always my favoured one um we used to swap round sometimes and, and it was a very good way of having to learn how to transpose and, and sort of read different clefs and do things like that. And that stood me in good stead later. Yeah. And I'm sure it also kept you, um, like it, it helped you understand the piece better because when you play all of the parts, you understand exactly. everything better exactly. as well. It's, it yeah. becomes multifaceted. Um, and you almost don't need the score because you know how everything fits together. I mean, in a way, you know, that that's another thing. I mean, you know, conductors, they often forget when you're playing for a conductor, they forget they're the only person that's got the full score, you know, and they'll mm. say to someone, you know, listen to the bassoon. And you think, well, you know, if you're over the other side of the orchestra, you know, you don't necessarily know what the, the bassoon, I mean, I, 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 in fact, I was lucky because of this training, I have always become quite aware of what other instruments are doing. And also being a viola player, we sit in the middle of the orchestra, so I can usually hear. But it does strike me that conductors often forget that we have our own line. So the rest is detective work and listening. Yeah, it must have been such a great way to sort of get into to this sort of music, especially, I mean, of course you had your piano training, but then as, as a chamber musician and playing with other people, just playing vile consort music is like the perfect way to learn all of the different ways of having to be a flexible and, you know, clever musician, I guess. Um, Absolutely. It's amazing that that just sort of happened to, to be how you got into it. It's absolutely true. I mean, and this was alongside because although I was at boarding school, you know, when it, when I came back in the holidays, we we did have a piano trio because my younger sister Rachel played the violin and Stephen. Um, there was sort of more or less three years between us all, and Stephen had taken up the cello, so we used to play piano trios with me on piano quite a lot. So we got used to playing with each other there, you know, and that. We we loved doing that, and and my sister and I used to play piano duets a lot, and we'd all accompany each other. We all played well. Stephen actually, he was quite young at that stage, but um, he he was pretty good at the piano as well. Um, so we used to do a lot of that at home. But this was another dimension playing consorts. But I have to say that I took up the viola at the same time I took up the viol, and so um. I was a, at the beginning for the first year, I found it actually very easy, you know, and, and probably I, my viola teacher probably 
took me a bit too fast. I, I wasn't practicing very much because I used to get made fun of at home. My my little brother used to say when I started oh. playing the viola, he said when I played slowly, I sounded like a cow. But when I played fast, I sounded like a hen. And it was so inhibiting that, you know, I used to try and make sure no one could hear me when I practicing so I didn't really do enough That's so sad. <laughs> I mean it was funny but he didn't realize but you yeah, know but it, it was a bit inhibiting because I had so much to catch up on and he and, and Rachel were already pretty good you know so yeah. so um it was it was a bit in how do you start the viola how did that happen like why why the viola yes well no I I did want to play the viola but my parents said I until I got my these O levels, I couldn't take up anything other than the piano because they were worried it would take away from my studies. You know, they, you know, right. this expression, you have to have something to fall back on in case you don't make it. Yes, 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 yes. And this idea oh, yeah, right. that okay. magically having five O levels is going to open your, you know, it's absolute rubbish. I didn't use anything I did in my O levels. I think I did religious <laughs> knowledge just completely out of, out of, you know. <laughs> completely desultory because you know I did I did English language English literature and music and art and then oh god I need another one you know and I didn't know what to choose so sort of that came up but I didn't know anything about it and forgot about it straight away afterwards but anyway um when I took up the viola as it happened you see my my father played the violin my mother played the piano my younger sister Rachel played the violin Stephen played the cello so it was obvious if we wanted a piano quintet in the family we had to have a viola and I'd never particularly wanted to play the violin anyway because I found it a bit dog worldish you know and I much I more yeah, identified yeah. with the cello and, cello and the viola and my, <laughs> and my yeah. father already played the cello so um I went straight on the viola and the extraordinary thing was that although I did do chamber music and, and quartets and stuff um and I I didn't really have a formal technical training at all but because of the viol um it turned out that really my acquisition of viola music from the moment I went through our college of music two years after I started that um all my repertoire was chronological really on on the baroque viola it really mm. was chronological and I, I felt I'd started from this and went through Purcell and up to Vivaldi and Bach and Handel and I was I just was very very lucky really and it was just very lucky that Francis Baines, who taught me the viol, it, completely coincidentally, um, he was made head of early music at the Royal College of Music the year I started there. So oh, I was yeah. able to carry on. But um, also, I should say that with the um, my brother's cello teacher, she was amazing, Jane Cowan, and she they used to run. It was called the International Cello Centre, and um, she learned casals and. Um, I don't know. She and she she was absolutely amazing. And um, she they used to do these summer courses in Austria. And the one I went to, the first one I went to, when I'd just taken up the viola, completely coincidentally, and luckily for me, Catherine Mackintosh, Cat Mackintosh. I don't know if you've heard of her. Yeah, yeah, I've had a lesson with her. And she just happened to be there. And um, we did a sweep from the Fairy Queen. And I think, this is what I'm going to do. This is perfect. You know, absolutely me. You know, so I really loved it. I took to it like a duck to water. So um, I was happy to have had that introduction as well. (laughs) 
So at the Royal College of Music, Francis Bain started an early music little Baroque ensemble and Alison Berry and I were in that Alison Berry who who later went on to be one of um John Elliott Gardner's leaders for the English Baroque Soloists and one of the leaders for the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. So we first met each other when I think Ali was about um, 15 and I was 16. So uh, we go yeah, back a very long amazing. way. Yes. Oh, sounds like the golden days of <laughs> of discovering yeah. all of this early stuff and just, yeah, well, such an amazing was. time. I mean, gosh, for you, I mean, I should think your parents weren't even born when I started doing all this. You know, it was such a long time ago. I mean, my, it's interesting because my mother is also a musician and she, I mean, she did most of her career as a folk singer or songwriter, but she also like sort of magically stumbled upon the Viola da Gama in when she was doing her undergrad at like the University of Colorado in Boulder and just the head of the department happened to have a whole like consort of files and recorders and was like you should do this you already play the violin and piano you might as well and so she stumbled into early music in the I think yeah in the 70s because she was just there and like happened to me it's like sort of similar and so she also fell in love with this music as well at a young age it is wonderful music it's so sad that it's not better known because um at music colleges mm. you know if you play the violin or the viola or the cello you know that's it you sort of tend to start with Bach you know you wouldn't necessarily unless you actually elected to study it or play the viol get to know this amazing amazing music and it's yeah it i really would encourage everybody to try and get acquainted with gibbons and purcell and yeah and we were talking about this because i i discovered this music early because of my mother she'd started a an early music ensemble in my like middle school which is i for you guys it was when I was like 12 11 or 12 and so she just for all of the kids by middle school we met like before school two or three times a week and we would just play we we did it on recorder because we all played recorder yeah but we would also she'd introduce like she had a couple of vials and so we'd like learn to play it and I remember just sitting there at age like 12 and 13 and playing things like this Gibbons and other things and just being like this is the best ever I think we sounded terrible but it yeah but you, it didn't matter I was it didn't matter it was the it? best yeah how brilliant oh that's nice oh yeah. I'm glad to know that you love it too because I think I think it's yeah fantastic yeah, and it's funny because I also got to know Gibbons um, sort of early on as well from singing all of his choral stuff and then sort of doing consort music through the singing and then trying to do it on violin as well. And, it you know, it never sounds as good when you just play it on <laughs> on violin, viola and cello. But, it, you know, the feeling of, of, of singing his music and playing it, it's just, it's, so amazing <laughs> yeah I mean the, the silver swan is very well known one of his madrigals isn't it and that's so beautiful isn't it yeah it was always a good day when there was Gibbons on the list <laughs> yeah totally
Um, is there anything else you want to say about Gibbons or should we move on to the, to well, the person all I, I think we've I've pretty much covered, you know, it's not that it's if I have very much to say about it, just that I love it. But I, I just did want to make the point that, you know, we think of Purcell as an early composer, but um, this piece was written 60 years later than the Gibbons. And if you think of a period of 60 years, um, the difference in styles you get between different composers in 60 years, it's, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? And um, sort of Gibbons and Purcell tend to get lumped together. It's true that Purcell was writing... Um, this particular um, fantasia that I wanted to talk about um, at the end of his short life. Well, I mean, it was actually, this was written in 1680. So 15 years before he died, yeah. That's right. Actually, it's true. He didn't die, die till 1695, but he, he still, and, and yeah. he died quite young, didn't he? But um, I think he would have been about 21 when he wrote this piece. And this piece, it, it, it sort of, it was quite an archaic form yeah, it's actually a really interesting point that Nettie is making about these pieces being written 60 years apart and the changes that can happen in music in that span of time. If we think about 60 years earlier than right now, that was the beginning of the 1960s, which were the years of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks and Elvis Presley. And as we all know, music being written today sounds a lot different. For a start, we have autotune. The other interesting point about this specific piece by Purcell is that he actually wasn't trying to write in the latest fashion, but was sort of doing a throwback to an older style. We were thinking about a comparison that we have today, and it's kind of like doing a cover of an older classic song. For instance, Moon River was written in 1961 and was made popular that year by Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. There have been a whole lot of covers of Moon River over the years, but to stick with the 60 years theme, the Grammy Award for Best Cover in 2020 went to famous English jazz whiz kid Jacob Collier for his cover of Moon River. You can clearly hear the original Moon River in there, but like Gibbons and Purcell with their versions of plain chant, he actually uses the same technique by singing lots of fast notes around the main tune in his cover. Here is Audrey Hepburn singing the original Moon River. Here's Jacob Collier's 2020 cover version. Now to get you back into the 17th century English sound, here's some of the Purcell we're chatting about with Nettie.
all the English composers, you know, they they had this wonderful language which was so um, touching and so full of, um, if I say false relations, that's that's something I'm sure you can explain better than I can. But it's when you get this real sort of scrunchy sort of chord or, you know, something that really almost sort of pierces you and then it resolves again. And I just adore things like that, you know, and this particular piece is full of those, um, this Fantasia in D minor, which is in four parts. Yeah, so basically false relations are when two notes that kind of shouldn't be together are in fact played either at the same time or very close together, and they make you go, hmm, when you hear them. Purcell is particularly known for using lots of false relations, they're also called blue notes, which make his music extra crunchy. Because these notes are so unexpected and the music is so old, it can be difficult sometimes to really be sure if a note is actually just a mistake in the score or if it is in fact a false relation. This is something that often comes up in rehearsals and keeps life interesting. Um, and again, I, I learned this with Francis and June, and I just couldn't believe this piece because to, for me, it was so multidimensional. I mean, Purcell, this was sort of, by the time he wrote this, and we think he probably did write it for vials. It's not absolutely sure, but it's what it was already a sort of archaic form. But Purcell so valued the, the composers that had gone before, you know, he really did sort of want, I mean, he keep, kept doing in nominees and it's amazing how long the whole in nominee form lasted because I think that had started in something that with John Tavener in about 1540 or something. And, you know, it went on for years and years, you know, because they loved it so much and it was such a good intellectual exercise as well as just seeing what you can do. And this, but this Fantasia by Purcell, what I love about it is that it's, it's very clever because it starts off all the parts come in with a, a fourth um, meaning, you know, from da, 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 you know, one, two, three, four, it dum, dum, or dum, dum. It, it has a lot of that. And so you've got mirror images, you know, the way it starts, it starts with a descending fourth and the tenor and almost immediately you get an ascending fourth in the top line and it's literally mirror image and it goes sort of in opposite directions like a, a reflection looking into a, a lake or something you know and it's absolutely brilliant and then he brings in canon as well which means you get the same thing but two beats later or however many beats later And again, it starts very sort of calmly. And then, um, and 
practically every bar in one part or another, you've got dum da on dum bum, and then eventually it becomes fifths, you know, which is one degree, you know, bigger, bigger interval, and then um, it then you get this incredible section which is sort of call and response. It's a bit like a gospel choir or something where you get it initiated by the the first voice which goes dum 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 and every all the other three voices go yeah 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 you know somehow they join in together <laughs> with the same rhythm so you get a bit of sort of unison rhythm you know simultaneous which we haven't had at this point and um it's it always seems to be led by the um well, by the top voice, but then you get a canon of everyone going dum bum 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 bum. And I think again, what I love about consort music, it is so conversational and democratic. Um, you everybody gets a chance to be heard, and every part is as important as every other. It, it's absolutely the opposite of having a tune and accompaniment. And I've never enjoyed that sort of thing nearly as much. And yeah. I, Although I'd, I'd sort of wanted to be a dancer, you know, and a lot of dance music is sort of tune and um chum chum um chum chum. You know, that as music on its own doesn't interest me nearly as much as something like this, where everybody is is sort of equally valid and has a point of view. So after this call and response, and then there's a bit of contrapuntal stuff where everybody is saying what they have to say, suddenly he goes into something called brisk, which is a completely different mood to everything we've had before. Everything up till then was very, very hypnotic and um, just sort of gentle. And suddenly you get um, bum, 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 you know, coming from the bass actually uh, first, and then it, it goes bass and then the tenor and then the top and then the alto and um that's much much friskier you know and, and it's sort of really um again it's it's just sort of whipping the whole thing up And then just before the end, often at the end of these fantasias, Purcell puts what he calls a drag. Um, in fact, it says slow. He wrote slow. Um, but just before that, um, everything somehow goes into free fall harmonically. It sort of falls into really weird sort of keys. And it's as if you're tumbling through, I don't know, sort of, you're just sort of tumbling um, down and you don't really know where you're going to end somehow and you're turning around um, and it goes through all the keys and then you've got this slow which is much 
you can really feel that the whole thing is grinding to a, a halt. I think that's why it's always called a drag. end he ends actually with with a cadence in d major we started in d minor but it doesn't even feel like the home key it feels as if you're still up in the air you know it's the most weird thing because you've been so shaken around harmonically you just became completely discombobulated and then you end you know on on in d major but it almost feels like you're ending in the dominant because you've become so disorientated so I don't. I hope that's not too technical for you, but um, I just wanted to sort of try and tell you how it feels. It's sort of weirdly hopeful but also discombobulating at the same time because you've gone through so many different kind of characters and emotions and sort of tension and release and things don't seem to get resolved throughout. It sort of just moves on to the next thing and then, um, you know, it kind of feels like an ending but you're also sort of like, but wait, what just happened? <laughs> exactly. Where? Like what? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, whichever part one is playing in any of these consort music pieces, you know, you always, it's always such an interesting part. And I think for me, that relates very much to playing the viola in a string quartet, you know, playing, um, mm. because again, you know, you can be quite subversive from the, the middle of the texture. And I absolutely love that, you know, Haydn, Beethoven, Mozart, they all really know how, how the viola can make its point felt even if it is sort of buried you know I always think of the viola as a sort of Nutella filling of the of the sandwich mm. you know the sandwich filling yeah, nice. bread, bread violin bread cello but you know you've got the sandwich filling which is where the harmony often uh, harmonic interest lies and I, I love doing that. power from from within <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah. I'm, I'm very aware you two are violinists so I don't mean any any disrespect by oh. saying that <laughs> Don't worry. I think we're, we're both violinists who prefer playing second anyway. So oh. we're, we're always on, you know, we're on your team. Because oh, you're, <laughs> my, you're my sort of violinist. Then. Yeah. <laughs> I've often felt this is a terrible thing to say, but with viola players, any viola player that actually actively enjoys standing out there in front of an orchestra, squawking away up at the top of the A string, I reckon their soul is, is not a viola player. I think they're a violinist in disguise myself. <laughs> Well, we'll take that up with the Viola Committee of the World. You do that. Yeah. <laughs> what a controversial yeah. opinion you just shared. <laughs> no, it's true. And I I mean, I play in a string quartet and we were just having rehearsal yesterday and we were playing some Beethoven and um, I'm 
most of the time second violin in this quartet. And it's true, there's just so much fun stuff in those middle voices that you can... There really is. And you decide when to bring that out and when to be like, yeah, this is like the thing you should listen to now and when to like hang back and just fill in the rest of the texture or whatever like you get so many different roles exactly and so often the viola and the second violin are in cahoots and having fun together you know while the the first violin's yeah. being frantically concentrated somewhere up at the top yeah. there and the cellist is sort of trying to sort of underpin everything and we can be having a brilliant time <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so I love I love playing quartets. Actually, I really, really love yeah. Quartets. Me too. So, what? How? How does it feel different to play in a quartet versus in a like consort? Because it's both oh, like yes. sort of families of instruments. Yes. Right. Both families of instruments that like their sound blends together in a particular way because it's from the same family. But. It is a very different kind of thing. And of course, you're playing different music. But yeah, how does that feel different to you? Well, as you say, we're playing different music. So the writing is is different. It's just different. Um, as I said, with a, with a vial consult, there's something about that sort of growly, groany texture. You become embedded in it and you get into this sort of trance where you lose yourself as a as an identity you just become part of this amazing sort of conversational texture but having said it how democratic and conversational it is at the same time I I used to find I completely lost any sense of self it was all about participating in this whereas in quartet I've always been terribly aware that I'm the viola you know and the viola has this to say and the viola is going with the cello here to make something amazing in the harmony and the viola's playing these suspensions here you know yeah I really like what you said about the yeah kind of having the greater whole I mean of course you're always thinking about the greater whole with both of them but I I, I do think it's much easier to just yeah, sort of lose yourself in the greater whole when you're playing consort music. It just it feels like you're just part of this moving machine that just organically just kind of goes. Whereas string quartet, yeah, you kind of have to you have to have a really strong identity that can then also work with other strong identities, maybe. Yes, and with string quartets, you're very aware that Mozart and Haydn were writing for themselves and their families and friends to play together so each part does have its own personality mm-hmm. distinct personality I think mm. you're sort of aware that they were writing with people in mind somehow and Beethoven actually most of the really good composers played viola and enjoyed playing the violas that's another generalization yes, but did. there you go <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, so you're also talking about the fact that these two pieces that you brought were about 60 years apart and then you found um, another piece that's another 60 years later. Did you want to quickly tell us about that one? 
Well, I did, but actually, I, I, I in fact, my, my maths were a little bit suspect, I realised, in retrospect. But oh. I, I, I love this piece so much that I just want to, um, I just want to share it with you and everybody. Great, we're ready. It. So it's from um, a Rameau opera called Les Boreades, which he composed in the last year of his life. And he was, he lived a very long time, but it was never performed in his lifetime. Um, which is really sad. And um, the first time it was actually staged happened to be by Sir John Elliot Gardner, except he wasn't Sir in those days, and I um, played for him. And um, in 1982, we went to the Aix-en-Provence Festival and did a staging of Les Boreards, which is a most amazing, amazing, amazing opera. The music is fantastic. And um, they thought that because... Um, I don't know, there, there was something dodgy about the plot. They thought that might have been why it was never performed in his lifetime. It, it, it featured an abdication, which they thought was a bit close to the bone at that time. Anyway, but... Yeah, um, fair enough. This, yeah, okay. <laughs> this, this particular piece occurs at the beginning of Act 4, and it's called Entrée de Polymnie, the entrance of Polymnie. And Polymnie, actually, I think, was Orpheus's mother and... I think she was a daughter of Zeus. Anyway, she she's credited with discovering the lyre, whatever. But um, anyway, this piece of music, I, I I hope you're going to be able to play it when it comes to it because um, it's the most beautiful, beautiful piece of music, and it uses again what it's got in common with um the Gibbons is that it 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 starts off with these wonderful just scales, cascades of downward scales and it's just wonderful and you've got a very high bassoon well you've got two bassoons you know and the bassoon there's a particular soulful quality when it's high and it does these scales and then the use of the flute as well for color and these wonderful soft strings I just think it's absolutely fantastic and um doing it with John Elliott was really great because he was so excited by it and, and I think we all absolutely adored this piece of music Yeah, and so amazing to play it in France, staged, and exactly. sort of do it in its home turf. Yeah. Yes. I, I don't know. I just think it's absolutely magic, and I, it always brings back, when I hear that, it brings back the, the balmy heat of Aix-en-Provence and the colours and everything. Nice. I just, it was absolutely great. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. We have one final question that we ask at the end of all of our interviews. Oh, yes. So we have to ask you also. Yes. Is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you're jealous of? Well, there is actually. And it is. Now, you're going to be really surprised by this, but it's the Rachmaninoff cello sonata. 
and I just adore it, uh, particularly the slow movement. I don't know why all my choice of music tends to be slow at the moment, but there you are. I'm getting older. But um, I absolutely <laughs> adore this piece. And if I hadn't taken up the fear, I, I would have wanted to be a cellist, but my brother got there first. But um, I just think it is the most wonderful, wonderful piece of music. I just love it. And um, I, so I am jealous. And actually, there is a version for viola, but it just doesn't cut it in the same way. It's just it's not the same thing. Yeah, it's yeah. hard, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. love that piece. Great. Yes. Oh, yeah. great yeah, choice. Nice. Yeah. Yes. Would you recommend that we play? Has, has Stephen done a recording has of Stephen's it? Stephen's done a very sure good recording of it. Yes. Um, okay. Should we put that as our, yes, as the example? Or would you write? Yeah. Okay. Great, cool. Um, so is there a way that people can kind of support you, get to know what you're doing, get in touch with you if you like? Um, basically well, plug yourself for a minute, even though that's a bit hard. Yeah, well, actually, really, nowadays the main point of contact is Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. There's my podcast, Tea with Nettie, which I interview people of my choice. And um, it, usually, you know, you can get, hold me through there um through that but um the recordings um the recordings of the english baroque soloists and monteverdi choir and john elite garden I'm, I'm on those and you can get at that through googling and things like that um but supporting yes i mean the the orchestra of the age of enlightenment um since we've been in in lockdown have somehow managed to keep alive with a uh sort of video program and it's called OAE player and um it would be great if anybody wanted to support that by um subscribing to that because I think the orchestra's been amazingly enterprising. Yeah. Yeah, lots of stuff. Um great. We're good. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well thanks so much. It's really lovely and you're very good at it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Annette Isolis. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and tell all your friends about it so that the algorithms do their magic and help more people find out about this podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at musicboxconcerts and Twitter at Outside Music Box. Write in with comments or questions that you have and we'll get back to you. Big shout out to Joanna Neuschatz for her help with editing and another reminder to donate via our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash outside music box. It's super easy to donate and these donations help keep the podcast running in lieu of advertising. In the show notes, we've included links to three Spotify playlists, one specifically for the pieces in this episode and the others for all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast so far. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Annette is by going to the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment website and their OAE player page, where you can watch lots of videos of her and the orchestra performing, and her awesome podcast, Tea with Nettie, which we've linked in the show notes as well. See you next time outside the music box. Music box.